So let's start. Uh, we're going to do a, a quick review of the final. And uh, I'm only going to do parts of it, and then you're going to break out and do the other parts with your class leaders. Um, I was looking at, uh, you know, when I was compiling the final. The final is made of all the, the, the final is derived from all the quiz questions. And the quiz questions are derived from the homework questions. And the homework questions are derived from the quiz questions in the original courses. And the quiz questions in the original courses are derived from the homework questions in the original courses. So what you have is the cream, the cream, the cream, the cream. You know what I mean? You have now, it was really hard to, to do the final. The first time I wrote the final, I came out with like 85 questions. <laughs> and then, because uh, I couldn't bear to leave out those things. And then uh, I got it down to 35, okay? But it's just, it's just the most important things of all. And you must know them. If you're going to be a good teacher, you really must know them. And, uh, and it was, I felt very proud doing the final because it makes me very aware that, that you are learning the, the cream of everything. The cream of everything in Buddhism is on here, you know. So if you go through this course and the other two, uh, you've done everything, really, okay. So it's really, uh, I think, you know, John was thinking about putting out the classes as more formal books. And uh, I think this one would make the first one, the, this review course. Because what you have, it was designed for Westerners. You have first Lamrim, which everybody needs, three principal paths. And then you have refuge, which everybody should take, and a little bit about perfection and wisdom. And then you have how to meditate, because you can't just study, you have to meditate also. And you have to have your daily practice, and that's in there. And then number four is what? Proving future lives. I think... In the Tibetan presentation in Lam Rim, it's not necessary to prove future lives so early, but in an American presentation, I think you have to prove future lives early on. And then you get to the fifth course, which I don't even remember what it was. What was that? Karma. Yeah, meaning that we don't believe in karma either, so you have to pay special attention. Four and five come earlier than in the normal course in the monastery because we don't believe in either one. We don't believe in past and future lives, and we don't believe in karma. So the whole first five courses, there's an order to them, there's a logic behind them. And the idea is to, is to introduce people to Dharma who, are not, who have not grown up in a culture which is Buddhist. You know? So I think this foundation of the first five courses is really strong. And I think you see it from the final. If your students eventually, when you teach, meaning next year, uh, <laughs> your students... And you know, I have little groups. I went to Dwarf's course, uh, her class in Freehold, New Jersey, it's like 15 really good students, and they were really sharp, and they've studied well with her, and she taught them the first course, and, and they knew everything very well. They clearly understood the concepts, and, uh, you know, I don't see why anybody can't do that. Israelis are a little faster, usually, but, uh, <laughs> but you guys can do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Okay, I'm going to skip some of the questions, so maybe the leaders should follow their thing. And you, you were supposed to get it last week, no? Didn't get the final? Oh, okay. Okay. I'll tell you the numbers I'm covering, okay? Or you'll remember. Okay. Question number one, I won't tell you. Question number two. 
Question number two is important to me. It's, some, it's about the relationship between the three principal paths and tantric practice. Uh, you know, and I made a big deal about that in the first course because it's a popular, I call them Dharma rumor or American Dharma misconception that tantra is some kind of advanced thing and then the three principal path is just Lam Rim. I mean, I've heard people say that. I don't have to go to that course. It's just Lam Rim, you know. And that's just a basic... Uh, in, they say in Tibetan, say kuktakten, say kuktakten, kuktakten. Kuk means uh, stupid head or fool. Tak um, <coughs> means to uh, is a sign or reason, and then ten means to display. It means to to broadcast your stupidity uh, publicly. You see, what I mean, to show what a fool you are. Uh, if you say, oh, it's just lamrim. You see, what I mean. Lamrim is the ticket to Tantra, and people have to understand that. Your students should understand that. Successful practice of the three principal paths, I'm not only saying prepares you for Tantra, I'm saying it turns into Tantra. It's a near you for Tantra. You see what I mean? If you do the three principal paths well, you will start having Tantric realizations. You see? And, and to me, that's proof that it's, it's a beautiful flow into Tantra. You know? That's the way it should go. So, uh, it's not like you get up to Tantra and you reject the Lam Rim, and especially morality or things like that. That's a very, very stupid idea that one might get from reading the Annex. What's that thing? The New Age thing? <laughs> it's like Tantric Sex Workshop, you know, number four. Bring your whatever. You know what I mean? And uh, very, very dirty and very bad. Okay? Nothing like that. All right. Uh, Question number three is the ten characteristics of a qualified Lama. And I think that's important for every beginning student to know. You know, that's something that all your students should know right away. You know, and it puts pressure on you to be a good Lama because they know immediately what a Sangha said or whoever it was, or Ashwagosha said was a good Lama, you know. So, you know, you got to clean up number four or number seven or whatever, okay? So... Uh, I like that question. Okay. Uh, I think next question is about the four principles of karma. And those are very necessary for people. Um, I think it's skillful to mention to your students how much the first one is like what the Bible teaches. You see what I mean? Because Jesus talked a lot about... uh, that you don't get good results from bad deeds and you don't get bad results from good deeds. Although it seems to be that way in normal life. And, and I think it's good to play on that bakchak, which is in a Western person's mind. You know, a Western person is, already knows about that, but doesn't really believe it. You know, they think that if they lie and they get some money, the lie costs the money. And then your job in the first principle of karma is to prove to them that's impossible. Okay? And that they should just be honest all the time, and sooner or later it pays off. Okay. Uh, second one, consequences are greater than the actions. I think that's important to teach to Westerners because they tend to think that a small bad deed is okay. Uh, that if they do something, like they call it a white lie or something like that, that a small bad deed is somehow okay. And even just jostling someone on the subway in a very irate state of mind uh, could cause you years of back problems or something. You see what I mean? And they have to think about that. 
you know, they have to be aware of that. Otherwise, you're like sending them out into a reality that they're going to get killed in if they're not aware. You see what I mean? If they're not aware that it's the case that if they do a small bad deed, it could cause them years of problems. Uh, you're like making them defenseless. You're like cheating them. And they're going to go out and do little bad deeds and think it's okay. And they're going to have a miserable life and not know why. You know what I mean? So I think it's very important to stress that to, to people. The second law. Uh, law number three is cool because if you don't do something, you're not going to get any result. And people are always hoping for something from nothing, right? They don't do good deeds. They don't keep their book. Or they keep their book half the time. And then they get halfway results and they're like complaining and kvetching. You know, that I didn't get my results. You know, and you say, well, did you keep your book? They say, well, you know, pretty well. You know what I mean? Pretty well means either half the time or half-heartedly. And both get you the same result, which is mixed, you know. Uh, not much. And no noticeable progress that way. You see what I mean? Um, and then I think when you teach number four, once an action is committed, the consequence cannot be lost. You always have to talk about the exception of the four powers. So first you teach that it can't ever just go away. And then you have to say, by itself. Okay. And then you say, by the way, the by itself means if you use the four powers, you can get rid of this from this stuff, the power. And then you have to teach them the four powers. Okay. Because it's kind of cruel to teach somebody karma and not teach them how to get out of it, if there's a way to get out of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Axel has, a, has had a, a, a philosophical problem with the idea that the karma grows. The karma multiplies, they say exponentially every 24 hours, for example, in the Vinaya. So, uh, why is that? You see, and all I can say is that there's parallels in the physical world. You know, uh, when there's a seed and it grows, the mass of the thing often doubles every 24 hours or something. Uh, and then I would say, you know, I like to think of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and, and Washington sitting around a coffee table in Philadelphia and, ta- and having a small idea about a thing called democracy. I remember reading Franklin's biography, autobiography, and he would, every day he'd get home, it was hot, he was chubby, he was like to drink, you know, and he'd come home and he would be kind of cranky and the landlady would say, well, what is it, Mr. Franklin? Uh, a monarchy or that other thing you guys are thinking about? And he'd say, we don't know yet. You know, I mean, so it means that during that time they were just sitting around talking about the concept of having the majority rule, you know, that, and that was, for those times, a very strange concept. And it was something very radical and experimental. And, and yet you have to imagine that that started out as an idea in his mind. It was Franklin, I think. And it was just an idea. And now it's become the way that hundreds of millions of people live by that. And, and I think so even in an observable historical sense, you can see how, how a single thought can turn into a huge construct called the federal tax-eating government, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah. He says it always collapses when it reaches a peak. Yeah, it does. It will reach a peak and collapse. But then, oh, when people ask that, you have to get into the transfer of energy. The billiard ball thing, like, and that's a big debate in, in Buddhism. It's a very big debate in the books about how can a karmic seed go on year after year if everything lasts only a second. 
And the answer is that the, en- the energy is transferred to the next seed like a billiard ball, like a line of billiard balls. And, I mean, that's the, what do you call it, Pramanavartika explanation. And then there's the Majjhimika Prasangika explanation. Okay? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's in this course, I don't, actually. It comes in the uh, sixth course, uh, the diamond cutter. And that's a long story. That's a long story. You can get it in the diamond cutter. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, what is the farmer's labor in relationship to the giant Buddhas? I'm sorry? To the giant Buddhas, the uh, five Buddhas. The Dhyani Buddhas? Yeah. Is there any relationship to the Between karma and that? Oh, I don't, not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. But uh, Rinpoche always says that doesn't prove anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll leave the next couple. Number seven is my favorite question. One of my favorite questions. Can the idea of karma, that is ethics or morality, coexist with the idea of emptiness? Or do they contradict each other? You see what I mean? And uh, it was common, even in Tibet, but also in ancient India, for Buddhists who were not well trained to say that because things are empty, then karma doesn't matter. And this is the famous story of the lady at the Buddhist conference in California, who, uh, this is, I read this in Joanna, what's her name? Something's book. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and she wrote that they were at a Buddhist conference in the West Coast, and this lady, they were checking out, they'd had a nice conference about emptiness and everything, and she's checking out, and, and she drops her suitcase, and it pops open, and all the hotel's towels fall out, you know, and... Uh, and they're like, uh, what are you doing, you know? And she says, well, everything's empty anyway. It doesn't matter, you see? And that's like important wrong view, you see? That's like very major wrong view. Uh, and, and it just reflects that you don't understand what emptiness is. The world is a big blank screen. Every object is only shapes and colors, visible objects. And then what you see depends totally on your past karma because all of those things are a projection or a creation of your past karma. So emptiness gives karma a place to act out its projections. Emptiness is like the empty screen, and then karma is like the projector. Very similar. So to think that emptiness has any meaning without karma is ridiculous. The events of your life are caused by your karma projecting images onto emptiness. You see what I mean? In the same way that a projector projects images onto a screen. So to say that somehow emptiness means that karma doesn't matter is stupid. And what you should, then at the end of your explanation to your students, you should say, in fact, emptiness proves karma. You've got to have emptiness to have karma. You see what I mean? Not only does emptiness not cancel karma, emptiness is necessary for karma to work. Okay? Karma wouldn't have a place to, to project things if things weren't empty. You see what I mean? And... Karma could never work if things weren't empty. In fact, nothing could work if things weren't empty. Okay? You gotta, you gotta get them from emptiness means karma doesn't work to emptiness and karma work together to the next step, the final step. You need emptiness for karma to work. You see what I mean? You gotta go through that process with people. I'll say it again. Uh, it's not true that emptiness doesn't mean, it's not true that emptiness proves that, means that karma doesn't matter. That's A. B, karma and emptiness have to work together. You, the karma projects onto blank 
objects, and that's how you get objects. Okay? And then finally you say, by the way, did you notice you couldn't have karma without emptiness? So not only are they not contradictory, and not only are they mutually compatible, emptiness is necessary for karma to do its shtick. Okay? And, and you've got to take them through that stage. Okay, those steps. Mm. Let's see what else. Number 10 uh, is the short definition of the Mahayana bodhicitta, bodhicitta, okay? And as you know, anybody who gets bodhicitta in its true form becomes a bodhisattva at the same moment, okay? So really you're talking about what is a bodhisattva. And I think there's a new kind of Dharma rumor. I mean, and it's a little bit hard one to talk about, which is that anybody who's really nice is a bodhisattva. You see what I mean? Like you often hear... So-and-so's a real bodhisattva. You say, why? You say, he gives money to anybody who asks. You know? Or, so-and-so's a bodhisattva. Why? Oh, they built a hospital in Calcutta and they're taking care of everybody who needs help. Or something like that. They are bodhisattvas by virtue of being extraordinarily kind to people. Okay? And, and that's not technically true. It's not true at all, actually. Okay? And, and it's hard to tell people that. It's hard to say that. I had a couple of people got upset last time I went through this. Uh, but, but what a real bodhisattva is doing is recognizing that this world is extremely painful. And they are trying to teach people the real method to stop this level of reality and move to a different level of reality. And those are kind people. You know, those are really kind people. You see, they are, if, if a person were a real bodhisattva, they would most likely spend a lot of their time trying to teach people how to move to a higher level of reality, like called nirvana or, or enlightenment. They would probably devote most of, if not every moment of their time to doing that and preserving the books that, that help teach that. You know what I mean? Things like that. They would be obsessed by those things. Would they also ignore people who need help, who don't have enough food? Who, you know, of course not. They would also spend time doing that. But their main task of a bodhisattva is to, is to teach people how to reach enlightenment and also to reach enlightenment themselves by the quickest means possible. So, so they would be somebody who was trying very hard to focus on the most powerful means of reaching en enlightenment because they love other people, you see? Because they care about others, they would be struggling to keep their book and struggling to keep their practice and struggling to learn Tantra and to practice it because they, they know that's the best way to help other people. So their idea of what really helps other people would be much different. And uh, of course it doesn't, I always say conversely, it doesn't mean that they would be uncaring people. They'd probably be very caring people. If they were refugees, they'd be helping refugees. If there are people who need a place to stay, they'd be helping and find a place to stay, etc. But their main focus would be that. Okay. Uh, I think it's important to know the definition of nirvana for two reasons. Uh, one is to dispel the old Dharma rumor in the United States that nirvana means some kind of buzzed out state. Okay? That nirvana means being able to sit there and not care about anything. Okay? Or that you disappear. Or you go on a permanent heroin trip or something like that. Okay? I mean, there is still less, but there is still this idea in the United States that you 
the truth is, Nyundip Malupa means you yourself would eliminate all negative thought. You would never have again a negative thought. Would you necessarily look different to us the next morning? No. Okay? I mean, your face would be kind of, you know, <laughs> there wouldn't be so many wrinkles, uh, you know, like that. But, but basically, you wouldn't look physically a lot different than the night before. And you could achieve nirvana at, at 8.05 on Friday and then go out to dinner with your family. You know what I mean? It's all possible. And then the, the second thing about nirvana, I think the very, very, very important thing is the second part of the definition. Nyundip malumupambe what? Sosotango. Sosotango, meaning you can only achieve it if you've seen emptiness directly. You must see emptiness directly. There's nothing else, there is no other path to removing your mental afflictions forever. Impossible. You cannot remove your anger. You cannot get rid of jealousy. You cannot even much reduce them without seeing emptiness directly. Okay? And that's, Sosotango means due to the realizations you had when you saw emptiness directly. Okay? And that's, uh, you got you to push that with your students, okay? Because otherwise, again, if you water Buddhism down and present it as something less, they'll never get there. It's cheating other people. It's actually murder, you know? It's a kind of murder to, to not teach them in what they need to know because they'll die many lifetimes after that. You're, you have a big responsibility as a Dharma teacher. A surgeon can cut the wrong vein and kill somebody. One life. But a, a Dharma teacher who leaves out the second part of the definition of nirvana, uh, seriously, uh, gives them a much greater chance of dying over and over again. Okay? I mean, you're very, it's very touchy. Okay? And, and don't fool around with the Dharma. Don't try to edit it or, you know, don't try to simplify it to where important elements are lost. Okay, because you could kill somebody. Okay, uh, I like number twelve, which is uh, the eighth-century master Dharma Kirti in his root text on Buddhist logic says that two elements must be present for tantra to work. Name them. Okay, uh, first one is that the power who spoke the tantra, and this also applies to mantras. Okay, tantra being books about secret practice and mantras being special formulas that you recite, special strings of words, holy words that you recite. So it applies to both, okay? The, the maker of a mantra and the writer of a tantra or the person who develops a tantric system for people to follow must first be, the first requirement is that they should be a person of extraordinary spiritual power, okay? Like Lord Buddha, okay? Uh, the second part is the interesting part. Uh, the person who practices it or recites that mantra must be very, very pure. Okay? And it doesn't work otherwise. Okay? So, you know, a person who's not pure could go sneak into the ACIP database, break the code, get into those 1,003 tantric books, get their Tibetan dictionary out and figure out four or five paragraphs about these secret practices, you know? But then if they tried to do them and their heart wasn't pure, which is not pure already because they just broke the first rule of Tantra, which is that it's secret, uh, and you have to get it from a qualified Lama, uh, it wouldn't work anyway. It couldn't work, okay? They would just collect bad deeds, 
okay, if they tried to do them. So, so the person who practices it has to be pure, okay? And mantras don't have much effectiveness if you're not pure, okay? So if you're not watching your morality, if you're not keeping your vows, if you're not checking your book, you know, if you don't even know your vows, tantric vows especially, mantras can't, they won't do anything for you. They don't have any self-existent power. And in fact, the Buddhists went to great lengths to demonstrate that the word Om doesn't have any self-existent power. It cannot, by itself, have any holy power. The person who recites it has to be living a clean act. And then the Om works. Like, amazing. You see what I mean? So, those are the two things you need for Tantra to work. Okay? And that's interesting because it's from a logic book. And it's true. Okay? Um, let's see here. I like to teach people the three different types of meditation just because of the, again, a lot of this course, a lot of the questions that I think are most important are coming from misconceptions from the early days of American Buddhism. You know, stupid ideas or misinformed ideas that we would like to root out of our Buddhism before it gets settled. You know, get rid of those dumb ideas early on before they become a tradition, okay? And the idea that the only kind of meditation you can do is, is jogom, fixed meditation, and the idea that the only object you can take is your breath, which has no virtuous content normally, okay, is neutral. The idea that just focusing on your breath for a long time would, would lead you to enlightenment is wrong. Uh, it was meant, it was designed by Master Vasubandhu in a certain chapter of the Abhidhamma Kosha. Ukjumu is a practice, and it's meant as a preliminary to meditation. It's not meant to be the meditation. So I think there's this misconception about meditation, or that meditation necessarily means thinking about a blank screen or a black hole, or, or especially the bad idea that meditation means watching your thoughts float by and not owning them or not following them, or, and that that's some kind of going to enlighten you to... You know, rabbits watch their thoughts and they watch them go by. And, you know, my lama used to say that all the time. You know? you know what I mean? I mean, that's no big thing. And just to not identify with them or to say some, they're not me, you know, of course they're you. I mean, if a thought comes by, you're the screensaver, right? And says, I wish I could kill so-and-so at work. And you're just like, oh, I don't identify it. It's already karma. Semba Yiki Le Yino, fourth chapter, Abhidharma Kosha. You know, that's already a karma. Uh, it's less karma if you don't identify with it, but it is your mind and you have to take care of it. And it's, it's not a meditation to sit there and watch it float away. So you have all these mental afflictions and you're watching them float away and that's going to help you? You know what I mean? That, that's a bad idea. Uh, no, I'm not aware of any scripture in which that's taught. Okay? Uh, let's see another one. Lama practice. There's a sort of a basic question about Lama practice. I think someday we should put a more, a more substantial question in Lama practice. This is uh, mostly about different steps of Lama practice. But, and I've been hesitant to teach it properly because it seems self-serving, especially to Americans. You know, if I got up here and said, what you really should do the first day that you meet your Lama is give them all your money, you know, sell all your things, uh, follow them around all day long, you know, and cook and clean for them and fix their clothes and, and whatever they say, do it, you know, uh, which is really what you have to do. 
it would seem self, self-interested, right? So I don't say it, and I don't teach it. But you should get a good Lama teaching from somebody, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it is the source of, of all your happiness. You know, and you have to understand that. And that's the opening lines of the, of the basic Lama, you know what I mean? And, you know, you have to see that serving your Lama is the source of all your spiritual attainments. But, uh, but because we're teaching in an American environment, and because of the abuses of spiritual teachers who have come to the West, I think it's incumbent upon us as teachers to do the opposite. I think we should, if it comes time to pay for the class, we should pay for the class. Uh, if there's a bathroom to be cleaned, we should clean the bathroom. You know what I mean? Uh, if there's uh, some trouble with a student, you know, and they're being bad to you, you should smile and, and, and talk to them and gently and, and say, yeah, okay, maybe you're right. And, you know, and I don't think uh, in our country, at the beginning of Buddhism, it's going to, it doesn't seem appropriate time or place to tell somebody, you know, if you say one inappropriate word to your lama, you know, you should just leave or something like that, or, or something like that. I don't think, it's not the time to do that. I think this is the time, in these times, uh, a good lama should probably have to pay most of the expenses and do most of the work and, and do all the readings and correct them all, you know what I mean, and do all the dirty work. And just because Americans will respect that more. But once you know the scene and once you're well-trained, I think... Uh, your, your own attitude, if you want to get enlightened fast, should, should shift, okay? But, but I think you have to be very careful about how you teach it in America, and especially be careful about money and things like that, and just not take any for a long time. Especially, I warn you one thing with students, you know, there's this uh, honeymoon effect. You know, they meet the Dharma, they get all excited, they offer you their house or their, all their savings. And I did when I met Rinpoche. I gave him my bank book, and he said, he looks at it. He says, "That's nice." And he said, "Here, you keep it." <laughs> and uh, it should be like that. I mean, don't don't wait till a student is more uh, mature before you allow them to make a major offering because they'll regret it later, and they'll see you as abusing them or something like that. And that, and I think for Buddhism to be pure, we have to sort of stick to that. You know, once you know the student understands clearly what's going on and and they still want to do it. Leon, when he first came to me, said, uh, the first class or second class, he took me out to lunch and said, I have this place in the East Village and you can use it for free. And I said, come back to me in six months. You know, and he did, so we took it. You know what I mean? And, uh, but it should be like that. You know, don't, don't let people do wild things before they know what's going on. Okay? Yeah. Uh, that was number 16, paraphrased. Okay. I think death meditation is important. The next question is about the three basic steps of death meditation. That's number 17. Um, For the following reasons. Again, you see it's a reaction to teachings that have been given in the United States. All the, or many of the death meditation teachings that have been going on in this country have concentrated on the highly esoteric, secret, uh, unusual practices that can be done during the moment of death by a very highly trained person. You see what I mean? Who's trained themselves for many years in Tantra, you know. Uh, 
and what color lights are going to happen and all that stuff and things like that. And, and I think that's a disservice to people. I don't think people are not well trained. People are not going to follow it. People are not going to be doing the right thing when they die. They're going to spend their whole life thinking that they can do POA in the last half hour and everything will be okay and they can pretty much live the same life they've always led. And that's not true at all. Okay? Real death meditation is those three steps of leading your life. The, the goal of a death meditation is that at some point you begin to act as if you were going to die tonight and that every single day of your life and every action you undertake, you evaluate in the light of you're going to die tonight. So at any given moment, you're not doing any action that you wouldn't do if you were going to die tonight. Now, that would lead to a lot of people quitting their jobs. Okay? And that's fine. You see? Because you will die tonight. And much better to be a little poor than, than not be ready. You see what I mean? Uh, and I'm not suggesting everybody quit their job, okay? You can do all this at work. We're going to get into that later. But, but evaluate all your activities. Is this what I would be doing if I knew I was going to die tonight? Okay? And then even the people in here who are practicing pretty well would make different choices about the priority of their practice. You see what I mean? You would, you would say, okay, you know what? If I only had one practice to do today before I died, I guess I'd be doing that other thing. You see what I mean? Uh, and that's also very helpful for people who are practicing well already to prioritize their practice. Okay? So that's the goal of a death meditation. Not what color light's going to come to you. Not uh, can you uh, trick karma and boost your mind to another realm. Come on, if that was possible, the Buddhas would have taught it and we wouldn't be here. Okay? Lord Buddha would have done it. Instead of spending 75, 76, and 77,000 times 10 to the 60th power eons. Okay? And he would have just waited until he died and popped his mind up to another place or something. You know what I mean? So, uh, real death meditation, the goal of real death meditation is that at any moment in your life, you can honestly say, I'm doing the most important thing I could do, even if I was going to die tonight. At every moment in your life, you can honestly say that. That's a test of a good death meditation. Okay? I see nobody left class. Okay, good. Uh, number 19. Do you really think everything in this life is suffering? And we talked about it, I forget where it was, in Freehold. And uh, the common American perception of the, you know, Lord Buddha said everything's suffering. And then your mind comes back and says, it's true, my boss at work is suffering. It's true, my spouse is suffering from time to time. It's true, I get headaches every three weeks. But it's not true that everything in between is suffering. I mean, I saw a pretty good movie the other night. I went to a good jazz show. I had a good Chinese dinner. You know, it's not true that everything is suffering. There's suffering from time to time, which, which sometimes is bad enough that you'd want to go to class. But uh, it's not all the time. I mean, it's not a constant. You know, life's not so bad. Uh, then you have to be able to prove to a student, and particularly to an American, that even the spaces in between are suffering. And that's hard. Uh, it boils down to explaining how, first of all, how those, according to Buddhism, and Buddhism perceives it this way, 
if the end of an event is disaster, then we can say that event is disaster. You see, I mean, when the Titanic was built, and when it was the most noble, glorious, biggest, most fast, great ocean liner in the world, was it suffering? You see, was it a disaster? And Buddhism says, yes, because it ended in disaster. You see what I mean? You can't talk about the first ten days on the Titanic as having been pleasant. Okay? And it's a true example. It's exactly like that. You can't meet people who were in the Titanic when it went down and say, but wasn't the first two weeks really nice? Why don't you ever talk about what a great ship it was? You see what I mean? And they say, no, you're, you're crazy. It ended in disaster and thousands of people died. It's, it's, it was a disaster from the beginning, you see? And, and that's how life is, you see? If it ends, if every relationship ends in divorce or death, you know, if every possession ends in losing this possession or having it taken away from you by somebody else or the possession breaking, you know, if everybody's ultimate goal is to become wrinkled and ugly and old, you know, then, then is the body nice? You see what I mean? And the answer has to be no. Or you can bring up the Titanic thing. And it's, it, it, it seems like a, not a very good example, but it's perfect. It's exactly the same thing. And you don't think so until it sinks. You see what I mean? You're still defending the Titanic until it hits, until it hits the iceberg. But it's a great ship. You know? And then, no, until the disaster, until you get close to death, you don't see the rest as like, when you get close to dying, the rest seems very, very silly that you work so hard to do so many stupid things. Okay? I mean, you have to try to think of the sufferings in the way that you would in the last few days of it. Because that's the real viewpoint. You know, that's the real place from where you have to check. The last point to mention there, I think, is, you know, to me, a natural American reaction should be, well, how can what you're selling be any different? People lose their llamas. People forget what they read and studied. Uh, you forget your Tibetan grammar. You start forgetting words. You, you become as senile as anybody else. Why study? You know, doesn't that have the same problems? And you say, no, there's two kinds of karma. Then you have to get into pure karma and impure karma. Okay? Impure karma always wears out. Pure karma always perpetuates itself. And that's a big difference. Okay? Karma done with the knowledge of emptiness can be perpetuated. It's like money that you keep reinvesting and get richer and richer. And then impure karma is like money that you spend and you lose it. And then the thing that you bought wears out and it's over. Okay? Big difference. So you have to get into that difference. The, we say there is a kind of karma that you can collect which will lead to only pleasure permanently, eternally. Okay? By reinvestment process. Okay? Oh... Number 20, what did Lord Buddha himself say is the purpose of Buddhist logic? Okay. People always coming up to me and saying how boring logic is. And it is. Uh, but the point of Buddhist logic is very profound. That you don't judge other people. You learn to prove to your own stupid mind that you don't know what other people are thinking. Like you always thought you did. You see what I mean? You learn to prove it to yourself that you have to go through the world in a state of, what do they call it? Suspended... Yeah, something like suspended disbelief. Anyway, you, you, you can't evaluate other people's intentions. You know? 
You really can't. Can you evaluate their actions? Yes. Someone's hurting someone, you evaluate it, and you stop them. You know, someone's on the street hitting a guy with a metal pipe. You're required by your bodhisattva vows to stop them because the action is wrong and it's hurting someone. But do you really know that the guy with the pipe is not a bodhisattva and that the guy he's hitting is the next Hitler and that he can see the future? You see, you really don't know. So you, you keep in this suspended state about other people's motivations and other people's reasons for doing things and you fight their actions. Okay? And then you're okay. But to believe sincerely that you really know what they're thinking is a grave error and has been the cause of much suffering of Buddhists. Lord Buddha himself. The story, remember the story it came from. Okay? And, and not to judge the person. Uh, also, there are different levels of practice. You know, distinctly different levels of practice. I mean, a person who has... Uh, for example, kept monk's vows well for a long time, uh, who's, who's done other activities very sincerely, could be seeing world in a much different way than you are. Okay? Uh, a person who's uh, gone even to a higher level through collecting good karma their whole life, you know, through devoting their life to spiritual things, could be seeing the world on a totally third level. And, and acting or... or or engaged in practices that you can't even understand. So you have to understand that there are distinct barriers between people of different spiritual levels. You know, you can't understand everything about what Ken Rinpoche is doing. For example, you know, Ken Rinpoche spends time watching TV. He's, he's like talking about the Mets and the, and the Yankees, you know. And what is he really doing? I mean, I sat up there many nights with him and... Uh, there'd be a movie on and, and we'd, I'd be watching intently and he'd, he'd say, he'd turn it off right at the most important part, you know, <laughs> like just about to get to the most important part. And then he'd turn around like that. And, what are you doing, Rinpoche? And he, Do, you don't understand. I, I, this is the most important part. He'd say, he'd be going like this, you know. And, and he'd say, huh? You know, and, and I'd say, the movie, the most important part. He'd say, oh, 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 sorry, you know. And then, you know, I mean, what's he thinking? What's he doing? You don't know. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, be very careful with those things. It's the first bodhisattva about, isn't it? You see? Be very careful. Uh, people are at distinctly different levels from, from years or decades of practice, and they might be doing something totally beyond us. So, you, so does that mean watching TV is okay for us? No. Okay. See? Get it? That's all. The, the activity is dumb. Okay? And we, we shouldn't do it. You shouldn't waste your time. If you did it at Sarah, they would punish you in the assembly. Okay? All right. Mm. I like 22. What does a person have to be to be omniscient? You know? And the, the normal answer that pops up in your mind is, they know the Latin names for every single plant and animal. You know what I mean? Or, you see what I mean? You think that. Or they know how to advance computers work. Or, you know what I mean? Or they, or they uh, you know, they understand what Einstein saw. They can explain what Einstein saw perfectly. It's something like that. I mean, your mind goes to, or they can see what's on Pluto. The backside of Pluto. You know what I mean? 
things like, I mean, that's, when omniscient comes up in my mind, that's what comes, you know, or they can tell if the boss is really going to give them a raise before, or they know the lottery numbers for next week, or, or stuff, I mean, when you think of Mr. Know-it-all, the person who knows everything, everything in the universe, the possibilities are quite interesting, you know what I mean? Uh, that's not what makes you omniscient, okay? What makes you omniscient, mainly, is understanding perfectly the laws of, of this is something you should do because it will make you enlightened, and this is something you shouldn't do because you won't get enlightened. And that's all. You know, if you understand that perfectly, that's what's the essence of omniscience. You know, they understand, they are dwelling in that truth all the time. They're constantly dwelling in a, in a, in a total awareness of what's right and what's wrong to get you enlightened. And that's all. Do they also know all that other stuff? Yes. So how come we still need money for Arizona? That's another question. Okay. <laughs> Did I just break a vow? No. Okay. Well, I mean, the question comes up, why don't they just play all the winning lottery numbers and Buddhists will have the best temples around, you know? Uh, there seems to be some comic uh, thing about the maturation of karma in there. Okay. Um, What's the basic principle underlying the arguments in favor of a future life and a past life? Okay. And that's a near linkage Okay. That's a material cause. You know. And again, this question is a reaction. And the emphasis in these classes on that question is a reaction to the American culture's, the Western culture's ingrained belief, wrong belief, that that past and future lives don't exist. You see what I mean? So, the only reason to spend so much trouble and time on this question is the, is the prejudice of our culture against future and past lives. Okay? Is it a founded prejudice? No. You just believe it because your mom taught you. And Mrs. Melvin in the first grade. You have no more logical reason to believe that than all the Tibetans who believe in a future life because their first grade teacher told them that. And they haven't examined it either. And they can't explain to you why there's a future life either, okay? So you shouldn't be either one. You shouldn't be a person who believes in future lives and doesn't know how to explain it. And you shouldn't be a person who doesn't believe in future lives and doesn't know how to explain it, okay? You should be a person who does know how to explain it and therefore lives in, believes in future lives, okay? And that all comes down to two things. You have to prove that mind and body are separate, okay? And, you, and a very difficult karmic obstacle obscuration of all Americans drilled into their minds from their past lives is that the brain is the mind. You've got to overcome that. You're going to have to work on that. With your students, you have to first approach the question of the difference between the brain and the mind. And you can do it by getting into the feeling of things or demonstrating that the senses don't stop at the edge of the skin. There's a misperception that the edge of the skin is the edge of the person. Which it seems very, I mean, to a Buddhist, this is a very primitive way of thinking. That the edge of your mind is the edge of your skin. Well, you know, what about the hairs and the freckles and, you know, they bump up, you know. Or, I mean, really the mind is easily going to the back of the room because the visual consciousness is going to the back of the room. Okay? Where is your mind? And then there's this perception that your mind is restrained by the skin and momentarily popping out and coming back. You see, I mean, and that's how you visualize your mind. You know, you're thinking like, oh, no, my mind's under my skin, and it's, that stuff's coming up here to my mind, and, you know, there's all these 
physics, you know, books that you read in high school, the light coming into the eye and going to the nerve and going to the brain. And, and you've got to get people over that. They have to get into that. This is why the first chapter of the Abhidharma is uh, it's about the the presentation of the five skandhas and the 18 daughters. It's to get you in the habit of seeing that the eye extends easily to the back of the room. I'm not limited by the, my skin. You know, my consciousness is not something that's at all. My visual consciousness, for example, easily goes beyond my skin. That's just a silly idea. And my visual consciousness is my mind. It's one-sixth of my mind. Okay? You've got to get people used to that. They've got to stop thinking of the me or the consciousness as being restrained by the, the bag of the skin. And that really it extends to whatever you can reasonably think of, and that you are, that your mind is there. Okay, so you got to separate. Learn to separate the body, the meat, from the mind, which has nothing in common with the body. Nothing. Okay, nothing common with physical stuff. You have to be able to get people into that mode or mood where they see the difference. The mind is ineffable. The mind is unweighable, uncuttable, unburnable, undestroyable, and easily passes beyond physical matter. There's no connection at all, you see. Uh, there's nothing similar about the stuff the mind is made of and the stuff the skin is made of. There's just no similarity at all. And you have to get people, they have to be able to make that distinction. And, and to do that, you have to overcome a lot of unreasonable cultural prejudice. And, and you'll, have to do, you'll have to work on that. And the first few times you explain future lives, people won't believe you. They'll go out thinking he didn't really do a very good job. Okay? Because of this prejudice. You see? Unfounded prejudice, but deep prejudice. Okay? And then uh, you have to get into, could the body cause the mind? You know, could this kind of stuff cause that kind of stuff? You know, and the answer is no. I mean, they're not similar at all. Okay? And that's the basic argument, okay? Now, you've got to get more refined than that. There'll be a lot of counter-arguments to that, and you have to be ready and equipped to handle them. have to read the second chapter of the Pranavartika. Okay. Uh, how are we doing on time? Not too well. Okay. Sal fell asleep in the back. Okay. <laughs> I like the question about what makes something good karma and what makes something bad karma. Yeah, very simple. Self-interested pain and pleasure, okay? It's not because God said so. It's not because Moses said so. You know, it's not because anyone said so. It's because if you do this, it will hurt you. If you do this, you'll get what you want. Okay? That's all. Okay? This is a good deed because it leads you to pleasure and to nirvana and enlightenment. This is bad deed because it causes you pain. That's all. You know, no one had to say anything because that's the way they work. Okay? It's like gravity works a certain way. It's not like gravity works that way because somebody said it should. And karma is the same. You do certain deeds, it will hurt you. You do other deeds, you'll be happy and you'll reach nirvana and enlightenment. And that's what makes them good and bad. Okay? Not because somebody said so. Okay? Not the courts, not your parents, not your school not any God, okay? Because it's just, that's the way they work. Okay? Let's see. We're getting close. 
I think it's interesting to know when karma ripens. You know, people tend to think, that's 29, okay? People tend to think, oh, oh, it always ripens in the next life. You can't prove anything. Okay? That would deny the effectiveness of a, of a certain Buddhist practice, which is what? Tantra. Okay? If it's true that karma only ripens in your next life, then forget practicing tantra, whose, uh, whose efficacy depends on the fact that you can commit powerful karmas in this life and reap the rewards in this life. Okay, the whole theory of Tantra is to become a Tantric deity in this life. And, and that's the power of one of the three types of karmic maturation or karmic ripening. Okay, that's all. I, I like it because of Tantra. You see, I'm interested in that question because of Tantra. We're Americans. We don't want to wait for our hamburgers. You drive through, you order it, pick it up <laughs> without rolling out the window again. Okay, yeah. It does, for sure. Does Tantra purify powerful bad karma? Yes. Uh, yeah, it does. It would have to, you see what I mean? Because otherwise you couldn't turn into a Tantric deity. So that, that would have to be one of the mechanisms or the dynamics of, of Tantra, is that it must not only have a very powerful effect on Sok Tak, you know, of, of getting new good karma, but it must have a very powerful effect on Jip Chang, just purifying your old bad karma. Okay. Or you couldn't become a Tantra deity in this life. Okay. Uh, I really like what I call the correlations. I think it's an important part of teachings on karma. Okay. Four different things that happen when you, for example, kill something. Because, again, there's this Dharma rumors or Dharma misinformation in America. You see what I mean? You step on a bug, you become a bug. Or something like that. There's four different distinct karmic maturations. Number one, the realm you're going to be born in. Okay? If you commit really bad karmas, you go to a totally different realm. Who made that realm? Acme Realm Construction Company? <laughs> Who made those realms? Who made the realms? Your karma. Do they exist now? Does, does a hell realm that you might be going to exist now? Yours? No. No. Get it? It's not like somebody made it a long time ago and you're moving there. It's not like that. A dog, it's not like they make dog bodies somewhere and they stuff spirits in them, some, you know, in some Bardo factory or something. It's not like that. Your perceptions shift due to a shifting of your karma and you begin to perceive that realm and that is the creation of that realm and that's why you can become a dog by tonight. Okay? It's too easy. It's frighteningly easy. It's just a shift in your perceptions, like the last time you got caught. First you had a perception of a normal finger, and then you had a perception of a finger with a hole in it. And, and dying is the same thing. It's just a shift. It takes 30 seconds, something. It's just a simple shift in your perceptions. And you are there. And you are a dog. And it can happen to anybody tonight. Now, if there was dog factories, and if it took time the same delays that it takes to build a building in New York, you, there'd be some hope, you know. You could say, you know, it takes a while to make hell a hell realm. It's not the way it is. To get to a hell realm, to create a hell realm, takes 30 seconds of shifting of your karma in your mind, and you will be there. And it's that easy, and it's that scary, and it's true. Okay, yeah. How does that coincide with, I mean, maybe this is a Dharma rumor, 
Okay. Uh, she asked why, why is it that I have to see a dog embryo? You know, I mean, if what you said is true... I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. Then why would you have to go through it like a gestation period or something like that? Why don't you just close your eyes, die, open your eyes, and you see paws, fully grown paws. There are four types of birth. Keneshi. Uh, and uh, one of them is called Dutikewa. Uh, and it is exactly that. You don't have to go through the gestation process. There are people who are born as other, in other realms who just look down and see a finished being. Dutikewa means a finished being. And, and uh, certain kinds of beings are born that way. And all four are present in the human realm, for example. Okay? We just haven't, had, you haven't seen anybody do it around you recently. Okay? But it happens. Okay. Uh, Second kind of result. Even if you are born as a human, you have a short life. You know, you're sick a lot. Okay? Like, we call it some kind of personal ripening, personal result. By the way, this includes, you know, the thing that you get killed by other people a lot. <laughs> okay? All right? Number three which is grouped with number two. You see, I mean, two and three are usually grouped together. Uh, and so some people only teach three kinds of karmic results. But it's really four. Jatokapa says it's really four. I left it as three in the answer key because that's the way it's often presented, more often presented. And that's the habit of doing that thing again. You are attracted to that kind of activity in your future life. Even if you're born as a human, or even if you eventually work off the karma of being in a hell realm, and make it up to a human realm, you're still attracted to that kind of behavior. That explains why some little kids are cruel from the beginning and some little kids are very peaceful from the beginning and some giggle all the time from the beginning. Okay. Uh, last one, environmental result. I mean, this explains your external world. Why is there pollution? Why is there war? You know, why are there muggers in New York City? Why, 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 why are some areas of the earth like hard to get over and some areas are very easy to get over. Why do some cities have nice parks? Rio de Janeiro, you know, unbelievable. And then some cities just don't have any, you know. And why is that? And that's all karma, okay? The whole external world is created by karma. Why does the sun come up in the morning? Why, why, why do five billion people see the sun come up in the morning? It's, it's a perception. It's a joint hallucination of your karma. Yeah. And some people don't get to see their sun come up in the morning. They're in prison in a basement. They worked at my old office. Uh, you know, they're blind. Things like that. Okay? The, the sun itself is a projection of five billion people's karma. Okay? And you've got to get used to that. Okay. Mm. Sorry? Yeah, dogs too. Yeah, it's interesting that the cross-realm shared projections. Yeah. Uh, number 31. That's that thing about Maitreya, about the six steps, how you get in trouble. And to me, it's one of the most beautiful teachings in Buddhism. You know, you have ignorance in your past life. That makes you have ignorance in this life. That makes you see things the wrong way. 
That makes you like some things and dislike other things the wrong way. That makes you do karma, and that makes you stay here. And I love that. You know, it connects emptiness and my condition, and it explains it clearly. Okay? That's where the whole shtick of Michael Roach about the boss at work comes from. Right there. Okay, my trail. Uh, you should understand the glass of water thing. You know, that's important. That's a, to me, it's a linchpin of Buddhism. And that's the boss thing also. Okay? You have to be able to tie those two questions to a normal person's life. Okay? You must be able to do that. If you're going to be an effective teacher of Buddhism in America, you better be able to use those two questions in normal people's lives to explain to them why bad things are happening to them and to explain to them how they should react to them because that's their salvation. And if you can't do that, then you're, you're not a Buddhist teacher. In my mind, you're not teaching Buddhism. If you can't connect emptiness to karma to a person's everyday life and teach them what to do when bad things happen and break the wheel of life at the first link, then you're not teaching them Buddhism. You know what I mean? You may be teaching them to be a little calm. You may be teaching them to breathe right. But you ain't getting them out of this suffering. You know, you've got to be able to do that. I repeat, question number 31 and 32. You know, you've got to be able to teach those to people clearly so that they react to the boss properly by understanding the boss's emptiness and how that boss is a projection of their karma. Okay? Must. Or else you're not serving them. You're not really teaching them unless you tie it to the suffering of their lives. Okay? Uh, <laughs> that's it. Those are the important ones. It's not 30. Yeah, it's 34. Okay. It's only 18 pages. Uh, but so come early to the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Tantra? Yeah. Oh, he said, uh, you said that if you practice the three principal paths sweetly, you slide into Tantra like a greased pig. Or, you know what I mean? You just, it just starts happening. You see what I mean? And, and I'd say initiation in this life or no initiation in this life. Uh, tantric things start happening to you. Now, what is tantric things? What does that mean? Two levels. Kirim and Zogrim. Okay? Kirim level, stage of creation level. Uh, without revealing secrets, okay? Uh, you start to have experiences of, of, of encountering deities and things like that, okay? Uh, then Zogrim experiences, you start to have definite and clear experiences of you yourself becoming a deity, actually becoming a deity. So basically those two things, okay? And those start happening. You can make those things happen by keeping your book well. And that's so cool. And it makes it so crazy not to keep your book well. You see what I mean? I mean, if you know that, that if you just do 10, 15 minutes, six times a day, tune do, you know, if you, if you had any uh, clear indication that these things could start happening to you if you just followed those vows, um, you do it, you know. It's not such a big investment. The, the return is, much, is so much greater than the effort required 
that even if I'm wrong, you should try it. You know what I mean? What do you got to lose, you know? I'm only asking 10, 15 minutes every two hours or something, you know? What do you got to lose? If, if that could take you to a, a higher level and start having all these experiences, and, and then you'd be sure that this was working, then what do you got to lose? Why not try it, you know? And the worst thing that can happen is that you'll act very sweetly to everybody else, you know? <laughs> And I'm just lying to get you to do it, you know. Uh, but I'm not, okay? And that's not tongue That's not Nidin, okay? That's not tongue I'm speaking literally, okay? Of course, the Buddha said, what? <laughs> Buddha said you can't believe a teacher when they say I'm speaking literally because they might be figurative about that. But I'm not being figurative. <laughs> okay? And then what are you supposed to use? When you get up to that fine point, what's supposed to take you over the top? Logic, okay? It makes sense that you could start seeing deities because everything's empty, you see? And my karma's creating my world. Ah, he's being literal. You see what I mean? That pushes you over the top. It's not figurative, it's literal, okay? Uh, you sure? We gotta stop now. Sal's gonna knock you out. Okay, one question. What's the difference between Buddha seeing deities and seeing Jesus Christ? Oh, 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 oh. What's the difference between a mental patient thinking he sees Jesus Christ and, and, and a Buddhist who's seeing deities? I'd say the, the stability of it, you know what I mean? I mean, if you know how to do it, it goes on forever. And I'd say most patients I've met usually go in and out of it and then go crazy and, you know what I mean? I think that's, a, my basic answer would be that it becomes permanent. And, and it's re- replicable, meaning you can make it happen again and again just by being good. And, and then it's confirmable. And I like that, you know. You don't have to believe me about all this stuff. You go try it and see if, see if the people immediately around you start to look different, you know. They transfer that guy you don't like. And then this new girl gets hired, you know, you're like, wow, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, all right, Sal says, have a break. And then we'll, we'll do, the rest of the questions will be covered in the groups, okay? Her. <laughs> okay, we'll start again. <laughs> Ah, very quickly. Uh, Lots of people asking me, what should I do for the next two months? Uh, I would go to Wednesday night meditation with Punsok. It's fantastic. Uh, If you have any desire, I would uh, keep him going on the Friday night Tibetan class. Uh, Ken Rinpoche will be teaching precious, holy, rare classes on Sundays. You should go to that. Um, think about helping with the transcription project. Talk to Aura. That anybody can do, and it's very valuable. It looks like we have a grant to start putting it up on the web, to start editing it. It'd be a great help if you could do that. Uh, Doubleday Books has just asked us for two books based on those, and things like that. Okay, So that's the kind of stuff you could help with a lot. Um, if you haven't taken one of the courses, 
Uh, I would start, and if you haven't taken Bodhisattva vows, like if you're one of the people who took their refuge vows or your layman's vows, I would start studying the Bodhisattva vows. We'll probably be, well, we'll definitely be doing uh, a ceremony for the initial vow, and then we'll be doing a ceremony for the final vows this year, before the end of the year. So sooner, sooner to get to the final vow ceremony, which will be late in the year, you have to study that course. It's course number seven. So go to the Three Jewels, beg Ani Pelma for the course, and she has them all ready. She's been doing a really good job at producing them. So you don't have any excuses. You have plenty of work to do, okay? Uh, Ken Rinpoche's classes, Princess classes, Art Engels teaching great classes down in New Jersey. There's this thing called Godstow. Uh, talk to Nancy. Free place to meditate. Take a weekend off. You don't have to go to bed and breakfast. She cooks better. Uh, you know, lots of, Michael Wig needs help pounding nails, painting up at Gusto, uh, helping. It's outside work. Actually, those retreats are more popular than the meditation ones. Uh, you can go to Three Jewels. She's got videos of beginning Tibetan classes, videos of Dalai Lama. Lots of, it's a big video library of holy stuff. And there's also some neat war movies. So, uh, and, uh, you can do that. Aura needs a lot of help, and that stuff is real, and it's going out now to, to help people and stuff like that. Okay, so you got no excuses. You can't stay or bored. And Puzak has a really excellent meditation class on Wednesday nights. Art is teaching Monday nights, Saturday mornings, and some other... There's a Friday night. There's a Sunday uh, secret uh, language class. I mean, forget it. you got more than enough, okay? So no excuses, all right? Uh, and study your Bodhisattva vows. Very quickly, I'd like to thank uh, all the people who worked on this class especially. And I, I'm going to miss somebody, but you can yell at me later. Uh, John Stillwell helped a lot. I don't even know where he skipped out, I think. Where is he? Uh, Seamus did all the sound. David Sykes has been setting up, they call him the, you know there's the most reverend and then there's the almost reverend, so uh, he's the almost reverend David Sykes. Okay. Uh, who would forget the staff sergeant style? Uh, <laughs> uh, Kevin doing the video. Okay. Uh-huh. And all the other things. Michael Wick, Bodhisattva. Uh, can never say no to anything. Uh, Amber setting up the altar. Anne setting up the altar. Uh, Annie Pelma doing all the correspondence course in the back. Okay. Uh, Aura and mostly Aura and also uh, Rob, also Ian, and also Christy, who worked really, really hard hours and very stressful because I never finished till the last minute. And then I yell at them when they don't finish it. So uh, for all the coursework, all the readings, everything, okay? Uh, uh, and 
that's enough. But anyway, you know the rest. Uh, Winston and his wife doing all the correspondence courses in their basement. Um, John's taken a day off of work every week for the last for this year to help clean up the correspondence courses and all the prisoners who are taking. They just reached uh, 950,000 pages sent out. Okay. Uh, Fran Diane does all the, she's our treasurer. Uh, okay. <laughs> she takes little teeny grants and uh, makes them serve 40 projects. Okay. And uh, somehow juggles everything. Okay. Really, it wouldn't happen without her. Uh, Margie, who drives us all around. Okay. And I'd like to thank all the student teachers, because that was a great benefit. I, really nice. Okay. Okay. I think that's it. There's lots more people, huh? Do we know about Ken Richards teaching? Yeah. Ken Richards is starting this Sunday, right? One, one o'clock. Very holy subject. Very, very holy subject. And if you can get it straight from the horse's mouth, it's wonderful. Okay? One o'clock. No excuse. The bus goes to the Port Authority. It's cheap. Every half hour. Comes back every half hour. Uh, it's a, it's a two-minute walk from the bus stop. So just meet somebody who knows how to do it. Okay? Um, last thing. Uh, every time we do a class, I try to bring up and talk about a little bit about uh, the theory behind ACI. Okay? And now tonight, very briefly, two minutes, which usually runs into five. Uh, I'd like to talk about the kind of students we have. You see what I mean? And I think in America, it's going to be a totally different trip than it's been in the other countries. It is not, I don't think it's going to be, I think it's obvious, it's not going to be only ordained males who uh, study these subjects in America. As teachers, you have to get into the mode of the way Buddhism is going to spread in this country is, in my mind, is going to be people just like you. And there will be ordained people, and that's very precious. But there's going to be more family people. This courses and this whole institute has been designed primarily for normal working people, normal Americans who have a daytime job, who may have a family, uh, who have lots of other commitments. And the idea is that for the first time in history, really, a large percentage of the population could learn the details and the deep philosophy of Buddhism and still live a, a normal life. You see what I mean? And, and it won't be uh, 1% of the population, uh, you know, in a cave or in a monastery or something like that. It won't be like that. I don't think so. I think it's going to be, my dream is well-educated, uh, practicing, serious, Buddhists who go through the five pillars or four, I don't know what it is, study, daily practice, meditation, retreats, and keeping your book, you know, your morality, your vows, those five things as, as normal people. You know, I think this will be the first, my hope, my dream, first country, men and women, uh, taught the Geshe course, uh, living a normal life, and, and actually using their life as their proving ground for their Buddhism. You see what I mean? So you have a normal life, but you know the details of Madhyamika philosophy. You see what I mean? 
and, and you're using it at your office. I mean, that's my dream. You know, you're, you're, you're not sitting somewhere uh, doing theoretical things or something like that. You're, you've got your daily practice. Uh, you're a good meditator. Uh, you're careful to do like two long retreats a year. Uh, you keep your book, Tunduk, six times a day. You're checking your vows and you study like crazy. Uh, and then you, I think the advantage of being a, a normal American is that you get to go try it out. Not in a nice monastery where everybody is so holy. Okay, You get to do it in normal life. You, know, you get to do it in the office. You get to do it in your, with your family. And it's such a rich uh, gold mine of, of mental afflictions. You see? It's the perfect... People used to ask me, how could you do Buddhism and work in the diamond business? I said, this is the perfect place to do, to do Buddhism. You know, you got greed. You got fashion models with desire. You know, you got jealousy among the top executives. You know, you got, you know, all sorts of wonderful, you know, situations to try your Buddhism out. Because you have to be tested in the crucible. You can't sit in a in a monastery or sit in a cave and, and expect to, to work on your mental afflictions. You know, it's a... Rinpoche forced me to go to work. I had an inheritance. I didn't have to go to work. You know, he said, you got to go to work. I said, Rinpoche, I don't want to go to work. I resisted for years, you know. Then he gave this holy lecture in Rutgers University. I'll never forget it. And I drove him home and I said, I'll do anything you want. He says, go to work. You know. <laughs> you know. And uh, God bless him, you know. It was the most wonderful experience, you know. It taught me everything. To be in a normal office, nobody knew I was a Buddhist, and people yelling at me and cursing me and making, telling me to lie for them, and, and then I'm faced with all these moral dilemmas, and that's perfect, you see. So I think America will be the first country, my dream, well-educated, normal people, who can spout Buddhist philosophy like that and do their retreats twice a year. It'll be a national law, I'm sure, shortly, where everybody gets two months off a year for retreats, you know? And uh, why not? In Thailand, they do. So, uh, you know, it can happen. It will happen. And then you're doing your meditations every morning and you're keeping your book. You go into the bathroom, you sneak into that stall, you lock it, pull out the book, you know, so you got a little uh, diarrhea sometimes. And you got to go every two hours or something, you know. And uh, nobody will say anything. I mean, they might think you're a little weird. But, but you'll get to tantric heaven. You know, it's worth it. You know, so I, I think we have to think about who's going to be the Buddhists of this country. And it's going to be those people. And I think it's perfect. I think these are the golden times, you know, to have... To have that opportunity, you're well-fed, you're well-housed, you can read. You know, you had 12 or 18 years of free education, and, and now you get Buddhism put into your lap, you know. And then you got these perfect, lousy circumstances to try it out. And I think it's perfect. I, I, I couldn't wish for anything more in my life, you know. And I, I think those are the kind of people who will be the Buddhists of America, and the teachers also. And I think that's the way it should spread. I think you have two extremes that I don't want to go through. One is where you have this aristocracy, priestly caste who owns all the information and 
only they get to study, only they get to do their prayers, only they get to do the rituals, only they have altars. You know, and then the other extreme is you go to church on holidays and you don't know anything and you spout a few prayers and you don't learn anything and you don't care about anything and you go because other people go and because your mother went and you don't have any idea what's going on and, and you are not allowed to look at the liturgy or be involved with it at all. And, and I don't want to see those two extremes. Uh, I think it's going to be something very cool among normal people becoming Buddhist scholars, philosophers, and deep meditators and retreatant, retreat, master retreat people, just normal people like that. And I think that that'll be the coolest Buddhist country yet. Okay, Sal's telling me that. Okay, we'll do a prayer. All right. <laughs> that's all. That's good. Okay, we'll do a prayer. Okay. It takes a long time to get the world out of a cloth.
Okay. Okay, we'd ask that uh, anyone with individual offerings line up on uh, either side of the auditorium, file up one at a time. <laughs> 